And that is? That was the cue for, for Simon's bit. I, was, I thought I was leading in. Oh. That was me being all pro. Oh. Hey folks, welcome to the Creative Language Learning Podcast with Kirsten Cable and Lindsay Dow. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's the Creative Language Learning Podcast, and my name is Kirsten Cable. I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Dow. Hello, Lindsay. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, too. Yes, uh, everything's going well with language learning. Spent a little bit of time recently going for a long walk, kind of catching up with all my language podcasts. I'm feeling better about my learning progress, um, and I'm dabbling in Icelandic. Ooh, exciting stuff. It is, yeah. How are you getting on with Korean? Yeah, it's going well. I've uh, finished my K-drama, Boys Over Flowers. So oh, yeah. Exciting. And I've been, this month, been learning a little bit, let's say, just really on Memorise of Slovenian, because I'm going there next week, in fact. Oh, my God. So, uh, just some very basic stuff to help me get around. And I found that... Um, Seeing as we're talking about travel, and there's like a really important, you know, there's so many reasons we learn languages. And I'm just going to go straight to our sponsor for episode 37, I believe we're at. And that is going to be italki. And if you, you know, most of you guys have already, you, you've already heard the name italki kind of floating about, I assume. Um, and I haven't really used it for a while, um, especially since I'm learning a minority language. But I found... I'm, I've booked a lesson with the one Icelandic teacher on italki. <laughs> Ooh, that's cool. See, it's interesting you say you don't use it for minority languages, because I was going to say, um, actually, that's that's why I find it quite interesting. Um, I was looking the other day, given our topic, I don't want to give too much away just yet, but there's actually some Scottish Gaelic teachers on there as well. So, uh, good mix. Yeah. Tutors you can find. Definitely. And you can connect with native speakers. So just in case you don't know what we're talking about, italki is a website, which is a big, big database, big, big place where you can find as a language learner, native speakers, international teachers, qualified language teachers, pretty much of any language. I mean, we've really put the stress test on it recently with Icelandic and Scots Gaelic and still found them. It's very convenient. You can learn at home. The technology is is excellent i think the site layout is absolutely excellent and if you want person-to-person -person, convenient personal lessons just try out you know have that first conversation with uh you know with with a human with a human not um rosetta stone or anything like that you are going to make such progress and all you do is you kind of go on italki make yourself a little account and then just have a little browse around and you're going to find if you're learning a language like German or French, so many teachers, so much choice. And that means you can find the person that is really right for you. And I don't know about you, Lindsay, but I have I have many, many times heard from language learners who really take advantage of the system that italki provides by trying out a few trial lessons with several teachers. Yeah, I think you get three, I think, trial lessons. So you can, you know, at a lower price as well, and you can... Uh 
have a little play, have a little test around and see which tutor works for you. Mm. It is extremely, extremely affordable. It really is. Um, and it's a, a, a system, to be honest, without italki, you know, it's it, it can be tough for teachers putting themselves out there. It can be tough for them. And I know that if you're a, lang- a language teacher, to get started, there, it just doesn't... It just doesn't compare to anything else that you can do because you get in front of all these wonderful language learners, all these people who are ready to learn the real language and to know how people really speak. And you can just put yourself out there and give it a go, you know, get some experience, get get a sense of what's happening. There's a review system built in so you always know who you're talking to and you know what's kind of coming at you. Um, and it's extremely straightforward and easy to use. I talk here... I've got an offer going for listeners of the podcast because we are talking to you and they are, like I said, thank you so much. And first of all, I just want to say to you, even if you're already on italki, even if you're not, I don't know, a new customer or whatever, please go to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki because it shows them that you're listening and it shows them that you're here to support our show. So I can't thank you enough for doing that. Just, you know, even clicking on the link, even going to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki helps the show but should you as you are there also see that oh my god there's an Icelandic tutor on there or Spanish or I would love to know more about you know Spanish as it is spoken in Venezuela Arabic as it is spoken in Dubai whatever it is you have got a buy one get one free offer on really on us so you take one class and you get one on us how good is that that's nice (laughs) <laughs> on a on a good scale <laughs> how good is that that's nice <laughs> with classic british understatement i think uh to translate it for you americans that's awesome <laughs> it really is awesome fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki give it a go have a little browse around they've recently updated what their website looks like and i really like the new design what do you think of it it's very jazzy mm, it's very it's a little bit simpler. Everything's a little bit cleaner. Um, very nice to find people. Um, and I was surprised, actually, what kind of difference that makes. Because another website... Okay, end of advert. fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. Just go there. Um, another website that I've recently found, they have changed their interface so, so much. And they're now a joy to use. Do you know what it is? It's Ryanair. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> it's really easy to it's really easy to look for flights. Their website was quite clunky thinking about it. It was terrible. Yeah, yeah. It was really, you know, ugly and I know I think I think it was the message that they were sending which is like, well this is what you get for your money, you know, we're we're cheap, that's the whole point. Um but it just made you want to not use them even even more. I already I'm not the greatest fan. Um but they've really done a great job on their web design and they are sending they're sending a, a nice message. So I've now accidentally advertised Ryanair. If you are from across the pond and you want to look for cheap flights in Europe, Ryanair is one of those airlines that you, you know, you can fly for very cheap uh, with hardly any service on a very nice <laughs> website. <laughs> okay, moving on. Interestingly, I guess Ryanair is an Irish company and... See what you did there, <laughs> crafty one. Ooh. And that leads me straight on to our today's language topic of the show. <laughs> today's language topic, 
and and we've I think Lindsay and I we we really both of us have been fascinated, excited. We were showing each other and the various books that we got on the topic today. Um, our and it's it's amazing. I think I've learned so much new stuff over the last week researching this. So you guys are going to absolutely love this. The topic is multilingual Britain, multilingual and Britain. Ireland. And Ireland, multilingual Great Britain and Northern Ireland and also Ireland because obviously I think Ireland is actually ahead of Britain still. I think in terms of identity, maybe. I'm not sure actually. But uh, certainly Irish is a language that is not just spoken in Ireland, it's also spoken over here ever so slightly. Um, But generally the British Isles, as an introduction are this place where you think, well, English is the language that that comes here. English English more or less developed in the country of England. And we all know, and in the polyglot world, never cease to talk about how English is this language that is extremely widely spoken, how the monolingual world that exists in places like the USA or the UK, for example, is a problem, how difficult it is to convince anyone from an English-speaking country to learn another language, how difficult it is for them, because their language is already this this main language and their whole country speaks this language and has nothing else. And as we were peeling back the layers on today's Britain and kind of looked at not just the history of the country, but really the linguistic identities, I found that the reality is so much deeper. The reality is so much more intense. And I think in today's show, you're really going to hear a lot about the like Britain is teeming with languages. This this thing that looks on the surface, you know, like imagine you you bought a box and you think there's only one kind of marble in it, and there's actually twenty. 30. It's incredible. And that is today's topic, kind of introducing you to the real linguistic landscape of Britain. That is fair to say. Mm. So, um, Lindsay, should I introduce our guest? What do you think? Go for it. Introduce our guest. Introduce our guest, who is... Oh, what what a wonderful guest we had this week. What a fantastic, fantastic... I cannot thank him enough. Um, Simon Arger who runs Omniglot.com. If you're a language person and you haven't looked at Omniglot yet, I would be very, very surprised. It is an extremely, uh, it's such a wealth of language knowledge. And I interviewed him on the topic of the the languages of Britain. And isn't he, he knows so much. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try and introduce you to the various different languages, because what Simon and I did is we sort of ran down the list and really tried to make up the 10 languages that are there. Um, And what we're going to do is we're kind of going to play a little bit of the interview for you and then Lindsay and I will come in and we'll have a little discussion and fill in any gaps that there might be. One One of the reasons, one of the things that we're exploring in this podcast episode is this sort of idea of the British indigenous language, I suppose. You know, the languages that were... Um, is it true to say they were here? Languages like Welsh, Manx, Cornish. Is it true to say they were here before English? 
Uh, certainly true of, um, well, the ancestors of these languages were here before English. It's thought that the Celts arrived possibly around 500 BC, which is about a thousand years before the, the Anglo-Saxons came along. We don't know what languages were spoken here before that. So the ancient British languages have disappeared. Um, so at that time, there was a kind of common um, British language. It's, it's been reconstructed. It's called um, Common Brythonic or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's the ancestor of Welsh, Cornish and Breton. Um, about the same time, people were arriving in Ireland, Celtic-speaking people, and they spoke a different language, which at the time was cl much closer to the, the British languages, probably. But I don't know if it was mutually intelligible at that time. Um, and according to our Irish legends, their ancestors came from Iberia, so Spain and Portugal now. And genetically, they are related to people from that, that region. That, for me, was really interesting, that their ancestors were from Iberia. Because the, now I have no foundation for this whatsoever, but the first thing that came to mind was Basque. The Being a language isolate, no one really knowing the origins, where it came from. Is it possible that there is some kind of connection between, between Basque and Irish? Between Basque and, and the Irish that was what it was when it came over, perhaps? I don't know. This is, it's fascinating stuff, especially when you think about how it goes back about it, over 1500 years, really, to when, when Simon mm. says 500 BC. That's a while ago. Uh, but because Europe will have been different, will have looked different. Can you imagine the kind of ships that these people sailed in on? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what made me think, is it Basque being from the north of Spain? Because that would be, in theory, the <laughs> the shortest journey from that part of the world. Yes, yeah, I agree. I agree that from the Iberian Peninsula kind of coming up to Spain is not very far. And it it draws, for me, it draws a line of connection between the mainland Europe and you know, Britain and Ireland, they're, they're sort of the separated islands. But when you go far back enough, you realise that they're, they're not islands as such. They have never been entirely isolated. There has always been connection. People, I guess, have always been curious about what's there um, mm. or conquering, <laughs> whichever way you put it. And do, so do you think Basque came over to Ireland or do you think Irish travelled out to Spain? Well... I am just googling this now <laughs> because I'm thinking there has to be some there's literally a wikipedia page called blood of the irish it says oh it's a two-part documentary on irish tv mm -hmm. and they sought to find the truth it says here gavin also explored a cave in northern spain whilst trying to link ireland with migrants from the basque region he was surprised at similarities between irish and people in bermeo he later extracted saliva samples from people living in the west of Ireland and sent them for analysis. Um, da, 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 da. Bear DNA from old bones <gasps> in an Irish cave was also found to be closely related to DNA from Spanish bears. What? So, human immigrants must have carried the bears to Ireland in their skin-covered, Karak-type craft as domesticated animals. 
Wow. There must be something in that. I think there is something in that. And I love this. I mean, Basque in particular. How many people these days speak Basque? It Ooh, must I be a give you an exact number. But... No, but I mean, not you know, not many, especially compared to Spanish. Mm. And we often think about the languages that spread only being the colonial languages. You know, the kind of that's the the big ones, I guess. The especially French, Spanish, and English. But there is more in the world, and there is much more spread even in languages that we now consider minorities. They weren't a minority then. Obviously, they were. They were probably ruling the roost. Yeah, if there's enough of them to get on a ship and head off to Ireland. Yes, that's true. And so Irish is a language as closely related to the Basque dialect of northern Spain as it is to, well, Ireland, really. This reminds me of the, the Welsh... Possibly, possibly. The, <laughs> you know, this reminds me of the Welsh expat community in... Um, not expat mm. community, but you know, the tiny Welsh enclave of Welsh speakers in Patagonia. Yes. Very yes. famously, um, there's like sort of maybe two, three thousand people maximum in um, in Patagonia, sort of really on the other side of the world, and they maintain Welsh as part of their identity, really. And it, it brings it home to me how much holding on to your native language is about, or not native, but indigenous, particular, is about identity, is about showing who you are way beyond nationality. Mm. And Simon shared some really interesting points about that, about identity, actually. That's very true. Have a, have a listen now. Yeah, so, we're, I mean, we're, we're going into, or we're coming to, um, kind of talking about which languages are most most widely spoken in Britain out of the indigenous one. And there's uh, one obvious winner, I suppose. So let's have a listen to that. In terms of number of speakers... Yeah. What is it like for all the other British languages? How many British languages are there and how many of how many speakers are there altogether? Do they mm. weigh up the English speakers? Uh no, no idea. <laughs> um well, everybody who speaks a language other than English in the British Isles also speaks English pretty much. There's no there's very few monoglot speakers of Welsh or any other language. I mean, some kids who grow up in, in places like North Wales, before they go to school, they may not speak much English. And some very elderly people may be much more comfortable with Welsh or, or Scottish Gaelic or whatever language they speak, but um, they, will, they will also at least understand English. So um, in terms of overall numbers of, numbers of speakers, um, According to the, the most recent censuses, uh, the number of people who claim to speak Irish Gaelic is 1.86 million, although only a small proportion of those actually use it regularly. Probably two or 300,000 actually use it in their daily lives. The rest only use it occasionally, maybe once a week, once a month, once in the blue moon. So the overall numbers of, of regular Irish speakers is is um, pretty small. That's a big difference, isn't it, between one point eight six million and the two to three hundred thousand that use it regularly? 
It's a huge difference and it makes me think of um, Irish Gaelic being this language that is more than probably any other British language, kind of obviously maybe, uh, this sort of political symbol. You know, it's like, a, it's almost a political, what, tool that um, people use to separate themselves from the British Isles. Ireland, um, as a, you know, the Republic of Ireland has, hasn't always been independent. So I guess with claiming independence, you claim your language identity as well. And I would imagine that many people who say, I speak Irish, or I have a Irish Gaelic capability, they, that's, that's them claiming as well their Irishness. Um, Possibly. I, I listened to a very interesting um, podcast, actually, called The World in Words. They had an episode recently about Irish, um, and they said it, it, that, that pretty much what you said happened when Ireland became separate from the British Isles and became its own country. I think it was 1912 when they, they said that happened. Mm -hmm. And very soon after, it's like, right, okay, Irish is now taught in schools. Irish Gaelic is now taught in schools. Um, but it was taught very badly, and so a lot of people kind of almost turned against the language. It was a very interesting episode. We'll have to put that in the show notes. Absolutely will. And these days, I, I am reminded of... Um, very interesting, like, like what you said about, you know, there could have been this language revival. There could have been this absolute rise of Irish Gaelic, but it didn't quite pull through, which compares, compares in an interesting way to what we'll discover with Welsh, I guess, later, which did bring in Welsh medium schools so much that it, it did prompt a revival. And revivals are tough and hard to do. Um, it rem I'm reminded of this this video I saw recently where the Irish, I think it was the Irish president, so this guy gives a speech in the Parliament of Ireland. He is using Irish Gaelic and this lady, one of the people listening, one of the ministers, pretty much walked out because she said, well, I can't understand you. Use use our wow. act, you know use our actual language pretty much you know I can't understand you because I don't speak Irish I think you should be using English because you're excluding me um, which is a classic for any any language you know this is one of the big issues with with languages um, and languages and politics even more being you're excluding me and this guy his response was was beautiful I'll have to again find this for the show notes. Um, <laughs> I apologize for calling him this guy because he probably is the actual president of Ireland. Um, he, he came back with, this is the country we're in. I will speak my language. There is nothing that you can do. You know, listen to an interpreter if you want to. And this is, this is not appropriate. The way that you're acting is not okay. I will speak the language of my country. This is Ireland. I'm going to speak Irish. Wow. Hats off to that guy for defending him, himself and his decision to speak Irish. Absolutely, absolutely. You should be, you know, you should be given, this is one of the things I like about the European Union. I know there's a massive expense to um, supporting what, 20, the, the languages of 27 different countries, but it is important. It is important mm. because it is a symbolic way of giving everybody their say and granting everybody, we accept you as you are, you know, who you are now with whichever language you speak is important to us. So perhaps Irish, more than any other language in the British Isles, definitely has this sort of identity undertone. I don't know. Do you know any Irish speakers? Um, Benny Lewis speaks Irish. Benny Lewis famously does speak Irish. Um, 
I have I, I have some Irish family through marriage, not my marriage, <laughs> through, you know, through, I think, my dad's cousin. So my dad's cousin is, is married to um, an Irish lady who has a huge Irish family. But I don't know if at least at least the, the, the people that I know from that side of the family don't speak Irish as far as I know. Um, but yeah, that's as close as it gets for me with Irish. Mm -hmm. Well, let's have a listen to how Irish compares then to the language that where the number of people who claim they speak. So we had 1.8 million compared to two, three hundred thousand who actually say they use it regularly. And let's have a look at the language that is actually used um, to the point where people live their lives entirely through its medium, which is Welsh. Um, with Welsh, um, in the last census found 500 and something thousand speakers. Um, what was it? 562,000 speakers wow, that's of Welsh no, in nowhere Wales. Nowhere near as much as the Irish speakers then. No, but far more of those use Welsh regularly. Mm -hmm. um, in, in North Wales, where I live, um, well, in Bangor itself, about half the people are native Welsh speakers. And many people who, who come to live in Bangor from other places will learn Welsh, like I did. I actually learned it before I came here while living in England. And many people who come here to study, to work, who come um, retire here, they will, they will learn Welsh. Not al always successfully, because sometimes um, when you speak to native speakers, if you're not, not fluent, they detect an English accent or a foreign accent, they will switch to English, oh, thinking they're helping you. That's something that <laughs> only <laughs> only a language learner could resent that. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But we, we, all, we all do to a certain extent and we go, no, no, let me practice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that can be frustrating. But, mm -hmm. um, um, I think I've got beyond that stage now and I can have conversations confidently in Welsh and I have quite a lot of Welsh-speaking friends here. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll be there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in my car. I'm only three hours away. <laughs> so, and in, the, sorry. In, in the towns and villages around Bangor, in this area, and Anglesey and Gwynedd, these are the kind of hot spots, and West Wales as well, Aberystwyth, kind of 80 or 90% of people speak Welsh. And they use it as their everyday language. And sometimes I go to events where everything is in Welsh. Mm -hmm. Often they're bilingual, but sometimes the the um, the main language is Welsh. So they'll they do a little bit in English at first, then everything is in Welsh. And I think that's wonderful because um, people are, are sufficiently confident um, to be able to use their Welsh in in all sorts of different settings. That is wonderful indeed. What a difference between Welsh. I was shocked at first when I heard those numbers, you know, the, the number of Welsh speakers being so low because I have already experienced a little bit of, you know, like that kind of sense that Simon describes of it being alive and well and widely spoken. Think of the difference between that um, and Irish, where, like you said, it, it they tried to bring it up in schools, but it didn't really work. Um, and Welsh is now a language with with an actual presence. Yeah, and there's about three million people in Wales, isn't there? So over five hundred thousand. That's a quite a healthy. 
portion of the population that do speak Welsh regularly. That's right. In one of the articles I researched for today, which is uh, in the in the Guardian, and I'll put it in the show notes, they talked about schools and education, and mm. in it says the numbers of primary school age speakers are growing. Almost a quarter, almost a quarter of school pupils in Wales are educated through the medium of Welsh. I can imagine that it would be realistic to think there isn't a single school in Wales that doesn't you know, acknowledge the existence of Welsh, which is and very different. Do you know, do you know what's interesting about this is that when you think of uh, a minority language in inverted commas, you, you kind of, the, the general consensus is, oh, well, it's older speakers, no young people are speaking it, and it's going to die out just through age. But actually, when you say that, and the amount of schools where Welsh is being taught, at least, at least part-time, you know, at least sort of being taught as, uh, as, a, as a language, as a sort of additional language even, perhaps. That's, that's very interesting, and that's quite different to a lot, of, um, a lot of languages that are often kind of put in that same bracket. Absolutely. It also affects the, um, the cultural, you know, I guess, docu- not documentation, but just the, the way that the media interacts in Welsh so not only do you have um, you know Welsh medium newspapers but you have that in Irish too you've got that probably in Scots Gaelic too um, the BBC has got separate channels TV channels uh, there's the Scottish one called Alba there is one for Irish I believe and there is S4C which is the Welsh channel the main Welsh channel and it's BBC Cymru which reports in Welsh but I find that you know I'm I'm as a Welsh learner at the moment, I'm watching S4C and I find that the programming, so much of it is, there's definitely loads for children. Um, and equally, you can get children's books on Amazon in Welsh, quite quite straightforward. Um, but there are also kind of teenage shows and things like that. And I found some YouTubers who, who are Welsh speakers, always, like Simon says, they also speak English. Um, but there's there's just so much more available, and I think that's a sign of a, a great language revival when you get shows like my my new favorite show. I've just stopped watching uh, Bill Kelwith because it's finished, which was a kind of like a, a cross between uh, a political drama and a soap opera, really. Um, and now I'm watching a show, and Lindsay, you're gonna love this. Okay. It's called Fashion Builder. Ooh. Yeah, it's called Fashion Builder. Um, so, because Welsh obviously brings in a lot of English words as well. Um, but Builder, spelled B-I-L-D-A-R. So it is transcribed as, you know, a Welsh native would get to okay. get them to pronounce it that way. Um, Fashion Builder is a show where this guy who's a model, who's also a Welsh speaker, goes and looks for the new, pretty much Wales' next top model um, among builders. So... It's, is this is this like a a kind of mockumentary style or is this real? No, no, it's real. It's real. They oh, seem wow. they, they seem pretty serious about it. Um, or you know they're kind of trying stuff out. And they always have a task where they have to build something, and then they have to they have a task where they have to do a photo shoot or a catwalk or something like that. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Apparently, I've just found this out. Apparently, it's actually the next in a series and the one before it, its predecessor, was called Fashion Farmer. So I've got a whole thing to watch. <laughs> I know, Fashion Farmer. Um, 
But this is a thing that happens. And I find that, you know, like teenage programming, stuff that old people would never watch, it's there in the medium of Welsh. I feel that's a huge bracket as well. It's a really important bracket because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's all well and good to, to have things there for young people, for young children. But then if there's nothing to entertain that sort of teenage uh, era, then that's when it will fade yeah, I think. And it's interesting you said about YouTube, the idea that there's YouTubers that speak English but also speak Welsh are choosing to to, to share things on YouTube in Welsh. Mm. That's very impressive. And about Welsh. And um, wow. I'm going to give a shout out here to Merevit, my Welsh tutor from letstalkwelsh.com, I think it is. And she is somebody who has grown up in the medium of Welsh and is educated in the medium of Welsh and has often... You know, she talks about this this shared sense of mission that people have now about the Welsh language, which I, I guess I'm also noticing with my little local Welsh club and things like that, that they they want, they feel like they're carrying a torch. They feel like they've... It, I guess maybe it must feel like you've saved something valuable and now you've got, you know, you've got a mission. Um, and something else that I've also noticed is that Bill Kelby stood out for me like that because it has an actor in um, who was in the British TV show Broadchurch, mm. which was this huge hit. I mean, you, you might have seen it. It's got David Tennant in and this, you know, there's a murder and it's set in Devon, totally speaking English. And suddenly he pops up in my Welsh TV show speaking Welsh. <laughs> and turns out he's fully bilingual. Um, and this is also something that I think, you know, the fact that, their film and television industry is strong enough to attract somebody back and kind of say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to act in Welsh right now. And that is something I like doing again, shows to me the exactly what Simon was saying. There's confidence there. You know, it's not like a, a crippled minority language. It is, it's people feel like it's a real thing. I think that's very crucial. What you say about the confidence, um, I think that's that's important. If if any language is going to survive, you have to have that confidence. And that's nice you say about the um, the kind of bearing a torch and feeling the pride to to share, the need to share. That's it's just essential, isn't it? If if something is going to survive, if a language is going to be um, kept alive, essentially, that's hugely, what you need. that is what you need. And I think that is the difference between maybe the the feeling that a language is dying compared to the feeling that a language is. I don't know, alive and breathing. <laughs> I keep bringing life and death kind of thoughts into it. And I mean, the book I have lying lying here is is called Language Death because you really feel like something something dies along with all those communities, and it's it's amazing to you know you really feel like you're part of this kind of revival. And again, what what Simon was saying about people who move to Wales now who have been monolingual all their lives, perhaps who are retiring to Wales because it is a beautiful place, um, feeling like and having the opportunity to pick up this language, you know, to go to some classes as well. Mm. Mm. So there's also and something about government subsidies. Yeah. Um, what you said about the um, the actor, there's a lot of things that are filmed, I think, for BBC Wales. Like, isn't Doctor Who? I know it's filmed in English, but it's filmed in Wales, I believe. Yes, the BBC's got this huge presence in Cardiff, mm. the capital of Wales, and they, they do a lot there. So I think that maybe Welsh actors are kind of 
There's a lady called Eve Miles who was in Torchwood, who I don't know whether she is bilingual, but is certainly, you know, a, a big presence. Um, the whole Torchwood show was set in Cardiff, so I think they tend to, they regularly produce shows that are, yeah, that are set in this place. Which, yeah. again, kind of brings us to the comparison, perhaps, with Scots. So I'm going to cut back to Simon and see what he's got to say about, you know, the native language of Wales, which is one of the bits that's attached to England. I, I'm so sorry, Wales. Um, but, you know, like, you can very roughly say it that way. And then you've got the other bit that is also a neighbouring country or attached to England, but part of Britain, which is Scotland. So let's have a listen to that one. So probably the next most widely spoken language is Scots. And there are disputes about whether it's a language or, or dialects of English. Mm-hmm. And, and when, when Scotland was an independent country, Scots was its official language used in writing, used at all levels. There was extensive literature in it. When was but when this? this was up till 1603, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the James VI of Scotland became James I of, of Great Britain. That's when Great Britain came into being. Scotland and, and um, England became a unified, well, sort of, uh, entity. Uh, Wales was kind of assumed in about 15-something or other. Um, so after that, um, Scots kind of fell out of favour. People kept, kept on speaking it, but it kind of lost its status as an official language in Scotland. So these days, um, people write in it, um, people speak it about... 200,000 to 1.5 million people speak it. But, um, you know, it's kind of, it's seen as a um, a kind of deformed form of English to some extent by a lot of people who don't like it, who want to kind of um, diminish it. <laughs> say, oh, it's not a proper language. You know, it's slang, it's just, just you know, all this nonsense people speak oh. and they, they don't speak English properly. But, you know, it, it has its own history, its own literature. So it has has all, all the um, characteristics, you can say, of, of, a, of a proper language. And it has regional variations, lots of different dialects. Um, it's mainly spoken in the kind of eastern parts of Scotland, the northeast, the south, the southeast. And in Orkney and Shetland, they have their own versions of, of Scots. So how many speakers are there of Scots today? We've had about, did we say 800,000 Welsh speakers? One and a half, 1.8 million uh, Irish? That's plenty. Um, yeah. So Scots up to 1.5 million. Oh my God. Depending on how you, how you define it. That's so much more than I would have ever thought. I thought Scots Gaelic was like... 12 speakers or something. Well, no, no, My Scots, apologies to the Scots. It's not Gaelic, it's a different, it's a, it's oh. a Germanic language descended from the old Anglo, Ang, the language of the Angles oh. who settled in, so in Northumbria. So I am actually misnoming it every time when I say Scots Gaelic. Well, uh, well it, that's one of the names. Ah. You can call it Scottish Gaelic, Scots Gaelic, Gaelic or Gaelic. Okay, I have to confess to my on 
going confusion about the languages. Are there two? Is there a language called Scots and a language called Scots Gaelic? Yes, so ah. that's correct. So you've, yeah, so there's Scots and then there's Scottish Gaelic and they're two different languages, right? And then different again from that would be the, I'm going to say dialect of Scottish English. Now, it's totally okay to be confused with that, I think, because this also confused me. So my grandparents, um, my dad's parents, are both Scottish, born in Glasgow, lived in Glasgow for a long time and then moved down to England. Um, so they've lived here for possibly longer than they lived in Scotland now, but they're still very much Scottish. You know, we talked about the pride before. Um, and there's words that I've grown up with throughout my childhood you know, little words and little phrases that I thought, oh, that's funny because that's what they say. It's because they're Scottish. And they've still kept their accent and everything. And there's a little book that they've lent me, which is a Collins Scots Dictionary. Okay. And until I started researching for this podcast, I just thought, oh, it's just the, the little words that they use in uh, when they speak with their kind of Scottish English mm-hmm. um, dialect. So, so words, to speak. Like, words like we or... Words like we, so there's a or few death. that I've highlighted that, that when I glance through this, I'm like, oh, well, I can speak this because these are the words that I know. So things like about, which means, um, you know, about. Yeah, right? yeah. Things like, um, I don't know if you'll know this one, bampot. I don't. No, a bampot is kind of a crazy person or a stupid person. Ah, oh, you bampot, you bampot. Um, this was interesting for me. Chuddy is a name for chewing gum. Now, when I was in secondary school... This was a slang term for chewing gum. Oh, have you got any chuddy? Was something people would say when I was in secondary school in England. No obvious connection, but obviously something that's passed down. Yes, yeah. Um, what else was interesting? I've got a few marked here. Ah, yeah. Jag and jaggy. Do you know what that means? I have... I, well, no, I know jagged. Okay, so what would jagged be? Jagged is sort of rough. Right, so you've okay, got you've got yeah. a cut that isn't clean. That's jagged, the edge. Yeah, yeah. See, I I get what I call jaggy nails, Ooh. which is when your nail is is kind of you know, you've got like a little hangnail or half a nail to scratch. Oh, I've got a jaggy nail, uh-huh. and that's come from from. Uh, it's also a name for a stinging nettle in in Scots. It says in this dictionary. Okay, yes. Um, the the leaves a of few... a stinging nettle are jagged. You know, the edges of those leaves yes. are jagged. Exactly. And so it's called, oh, it's a jaggy. Be careful of the jaggies. Be careful yeah. of the stinging nettles. Wow. Um, peely, peely Wally is another one that from my youth, I've always, always used the word Peely Wally. Do you know what that means? I have no idea. No, that means pale. If you look kind of pale and ill, oh, you look a bit Peely Wally. Are you all right? <laughs> okay. I think um, I've heard my friend Marie say this because she's recently moved to Edinburgh ah. and in Edinburgh has had to uh, familiarise herself with some of the Scots words, yeah. Or oh, Scottish, no, right. Scottish English. Oh, I'm still not doing it right. Some of the, well, yeah, Scottish English or Scots, because, see, then, then also glancing through the book, there's things like this. Murder police, which it says here. Murder police is a frequently jocular cry for help in any confused or awkward situation used mainly in the Glasgow area. <laughs> for example, it's always murder police in the shops before Christmas. Okay. Um, you do so an amazing really... Scottish accent. Oh, hi. I didn't even know about that. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> so I was really intrigued and I always just thought this little dictionary was just the words that were in Scottish English. Then researching for this podcast discovered, okay, so Scots is its own thing and it is by most people considered a language, not a dialect, separate from Scottish English, which is probably what my grandparents speak, which is English kind of peppered with these words that are just different. And even now there's words I go, what are you saying? What does that mean? <laughs> right. Um, but there's a text here. So this is from Omniglot and it's a sample text in Scots. I'm going to attempt to read this. I don't know numbers. So I'm just going to say 1972 when I get to that bit, but I'll, I'll give it a go. So it says, the Scots Lead Association was founded in 1972 and it'll stay for Scots in literature, drama, the media, education, in in ilka day us. Aki Scots was ain't the state language of Scotland. It's a valid part of Wicherskip and the associate takes tint to the fact that it should can tag its state as a language of Scotland, along with Gaelic and English. Oh my god! Wow! Okay, I can see... Okay, this makes so much sense that Simon was talking about Scots as this kind of... Oh, people thought it was a bastardised version of English. Right, yeah. This is like what the German dialects are like. You know, like, this is the sort of level of... Sort of there's a hint of maybe you can tell what it's meant to be, but it definitely is its own thing. It's exactly... This is beautiful. Thank you, Lindsay. That's okay. And I don't know how good that Scots was, but when I read that, I can understand. It would be like, with my Spanish knowledge, trying to read Catalan, right? Yep, yep. You know, so I can read that and I can understand what's going on, but I, the translation underneath is useful for me to kind of fill in the gaps. Yes, I feel like that about many. I feel like that about yeah. things like Bavarian or Swiss yeah. German. Whereas Absolutely. Swiss German is this sort of, like, you. it's difficult for a... I used to have this job where I phoned, um, I was working for um, like this, this survey company. I had to ask people um, who had taken their car to the garage about their experience, you know, do one of those, you know, one out of five, how satisfied were you surveys? Um, and I had to call Switzerland for, you know, I was, I was employed to, to, for Switzerland particularly because I speak French and German and you never know if the person answering the phone will speak French or German. Um, and so many times I had to, ask them politely to modify their German and stop speaking Swiss German because I couldn't understand them well enough. Oh, wow. So it would be a little bit... That's, that reminds me. So the Scots level of like modification to English reminds me of the Swiss level of modification to German. Okay, yeah. And, and so it's often... It's classed as its own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It is... Yeah. Well, because it's a separate country and I'm reminded of what yeah. Andre Klein said. Do you remember when we were doing the live show the European Day of Languages show, um, he put it so beautifully and said, a language is a dialect with an army. Um, Absolutely. Now, I know Switzerland doesn't have much of an army, but it is sort of, you know, it has borders and a currency and all that stuff. And that is why Swiss German might be a language, whereas uh, Moselle Franconian, what I speak, isn't. And then Luxembourgish, which is pretty much the same thing, is, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And that applies to Scots, huh? Yeah, and what you said about Welsh, about the the young people and and people kind of teaching it and going forward and encouraging other people to learn it, that's the army, isn't it, for Welsh? Oh, that's so beautiful, yes. The Welsh army. That's exactly what that is. An army of love. (laughs) But then, coming back to Scotland. Yes. So there's Scottish English, which is essentially kind of a a dialect of English. 
Um, then there's Scots, which we've just looked at. Then there's Scottish Gaelic. Now, if I read you, well, attempt to read you the sample text of Scottish Gaelic from Omniglot, here's how that sounds. And I'm oh. sure this is littered with far more errors than my attempt at Scots. Are you ready? Dun, dun, dun. Harich ul dun er abreth sach os kroenon an an urams an an kyochian. Haeth er ambreth le reusan is le kores agus marsin buchkor darpich abreth beor nam mers fern an an spuriat brachthareil. What? That is completely different. That is totally. And it reminds me of this, what Simon mentioned earlier in the interview, where he talked about Brythonic and Celtic, um, and Scots, like, Scots Gaelic is a Celtic language, whereas Welsh is a Brythonic language, so they're not related at all, so I can make out even less of that. And yeah. there's a tie, isn't there, between Scottish and Irish? Yes, and also, as um, as Simon says, there is another language related to Scots. There's an offshoot of Scots. Mm -hmm. This is Germanic language um, in, in Northern Ireland called Ulster Scots or Ullans oh. that has about 40,000 speakers. Um, according to the um, Northern Ireland um, peace process kind of settlement, that has official status along with Irish Gaelic and English. Um but even people who speak it don't think it's a, it's a, a different language. This was interesting one for me. Yeah. Ulster Scots. Ulster Scots. Did you know this existed? I didn't even know it existed, and I was shocked to hear official language. So the UK, according to this, would have f four official languages: Irish, Gaelic, Ulster Scots, Welsh, and English. I'm not sure. That's, Sorry, that's nuts, isn't it? Um, well, I guess it's in the in it's in the separate states. So Northern yeah. Ireland, as a separate as a country, um, can have official languages that don't apply to the Union of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Same as, in the the official language of England isn't Welsh, but the official language of Wales is Welsh and English. And then the same applies to, uh, Scots. Yeah. Okay, so Ulster Scots. So Ulster Scots, spoken in Northern Ireland, along with, with about 2% of the population mm -hmm. of Northern Ireland speak Ulster Scots, and about 5.6 speak Irish in Northern Ireland, which compared to the Republic of Ireland, I think the Republic of Ireland was about 36% speak Irish. So mm -hmm. there's quite a difference there with that one. Yes, I find it interesting that, you know, I'm, I'm tying this back to the whole sort of language, identity and dialect that we have encountered so many times. And you can see that in Northern Ireland, where Simon mentions here, you know, the, the speakers he knows of Ulster Scots kind of say, ah, it's not really a language, but it's just a thing and it's a dialect. And, yeah, you know, equally, those are people perhaps culturally more aligned with um, British Union, whereas you've got the Irish speakers. And again, they're probably claiming part of their identity, their Irishness through speaking Irish and or making an effort to learn Irish. Language is so powerful, isn't it? Language is so powerful. We don't even know what we're, you know, like what we're letting ourselves in for. Yeah, With, it's, it's a huge, huge thing. Mm, it, this is, yeah, 
it's just amazing when you go ever so slightly be below the surface, not just what is there in Britain, but also what is there in our minds and in the kind of people that we are. Um, and, you know, learning, you, you know, talk about polyglots. You, a British person could spend their whole lifetime just learning the languages that are only spoken in Britain. Mm, absolutely. And, and we haven't even covered them all. There's even more. There's even more. There's, There's even, even more. Oh my God, let's check those Should out. Should we go back to Simon? Uh, back to Simon, indeed. What about, I mean, obviously there is BSL, which is an entirely yeah. different world. Yes, indeed. Mm. Yes, uh, British Sign Language. Yeah, I know a little bit of that. That developed um, kind of spontaneously from when people started to to set up schools for for deaf deaf children, and they they kind of they had their own kind of home sign language that they worked out as a way to communicate with their family and friends. And when they all got together, they kind of pooled their resources, and this this language developed from there. Mm -hmm. So it's indigenous to the to the UK to, to Britain. Um, there's a different sign language in, in Ireland and in, in America they have their own version and every different country has its own. Australia and New Zealand, they have their own. So you'd think English speaking countries would all have a similar sign language, but it's not true. <laughs> but then apparently Australian and New Zealand sign languages is, is kind of developed from British sign language. So they're, mm -hmm. they're quite similar. Wow. Sign languages. This is this whole other thing that just fascinates me. I could, Oh, it's its own podcast, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's it's its own uh, documentary and its own kind of. There's there's so much to them. I would probably want to make a video or something like that just to document uh, some of the sign language available. Because if I started signing right now, it wouldn't really, it would, it doesn't really translate to audio <laughs> by design. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, sign languages are. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think many, many people don't realise or don't realise that sign languages are so local and they are local to the extent where it even, you know, like people have their nicknames. So you don't always, if you are signing routinely, you will spell out, you, you won't spell out your name every single time. You might just do like a little L for Lindsay or something like that. But ah. somebody, a signer from a different region or who doesn't know Lindsay or something like that. You might do LL, language Lindsay or something. You know, they might use the same sign to say something slightly different. So signing is is very, very personal and local very quickly. So I know that here, for example, there might be a local sign for Preston, you know, because yeah. that's that's local here. But if you are in London and you don't have Preston as something that you refer to regularly, you're just going to spell it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just like a, a spoken language dialect and just like local a spoken words. language. Yeah. 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 So, you know, when, when, when I refer to something that is extremely local to me, you know, I have to also explain to somebody who isn't from here, um, what, what I'm talking about and sign language as such, I think because it is, it, it's so much of a language. It's so much of a wonderful, interesting, fascinating communication system and is hugely underestimated. So I'm really glad that Simon covered it. And I'm also really glad that sign is a an official language in that sense of, of Britain and indigenous. Mm. 
Yeah, so, this is really cool, isn't it? We've got a, an indigenous language that's only really been made up very recently in that sense. It's not thousands of years old, but it's still indigenous. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. There are, there are a couple more um, that are a lot older. There are which indeed. Which Sam had mentioned. Which Sam Should had we mentioned. have a listen about those? Let's do that. Um, and then what I really liked in this list, so we've got English, obviously, um, yeah. Scots, British Sign Language, Welsh, Gaelic, Irish, um, yeah. the, the, the sort of outposts, Cornish and Manx. Uh, yeah, yeah they're, they're both interesting languages because mm. they've been revived because there's no native speakers left of either of them. Yeah. Um, with Cornish, um, the last person who could have a conversation in Cornish apparently died in 1891 and the revival started not long after that. So there's no recordings of the, the native speakers in Cornish. So there's a lot of dispute about how it was pronounced and some people <laughs> said the late Cornish wasn't was it was too corrupted by English influence, so they went back to the earlier versions of it. Uh-huh. There's quite a lot of, of written material from the Middle Ages, so they based their revived version on that. But other people said, well, we would try and carry on with what was left and use whatever material it could find. Yeah. So there's, there's modern Cornish and there's kind of medieval Cornish. And, and um, similar for Manx. Um, no, not different from Manx, actually, because the last native speaker officially died in 1974. I was Ned Madrill. But when I was doing my research about Manx for my MA in linguistics, I was told that there were other native speakers into the 1980s, but they were too ashamed to admit that they spoke the language, which gives you an idea of how how its status was at that time. Let's talk about Cornish first. Mm-hmm. Cornish, okay. spoken in Cornwall, southwest, uh, a county in the southwest of England for our non-British listeners. Go on then. How many speakers do you think there are of Cornish? Well, bearing in mind that there isn't, there isn't a native speaker left. Yeah. And I know that Cornish has has made a big effort to revive. So we're talking about speakers in the sense of I guess how many people claim Cornish as their main language? What do you think? Their main language? I oh um fifty. Oh, okay. Five hundred and fifty seven. According to Wikipedia. Not bad, that's a village. It's yeah, and it says as well, twenty children being raised as revived Cornish speakers. That was from two thousand. <gasps> oh my god. Yeah. That's like Esperanto, isn't it? Esperanto natives. Yeah. Crazy idea, but it's happening. Uh-huh. In 2010, the first Cornish language crash opened. Wowza. So things are happening. And like we mentioned with Welsh, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the youth is kind of the key, isn't it? You know, the last native speaker died. And then, then what do you do? So it's the youth is, is really the key to keep something alive. So it's interesting to see that Things are happening for Cornish. What about yeah. Manx? What about Manx? I, um, just to just to comment on that, it's interesting for me because um, this is a different angle, but I think a much more functional, justified and open-minded way of going about in- reintroducing a language by teaching it to children. First of all, in order to, you know, 
create that world for children. You will need adults who have taken it upon themselves to create that world. Um, but also it, it puts the, you know, because there is that endless disputed belief or that children are the better language learners. But in this case, I can completely see it because they don't think critically about what's the point in learning Cornish? You know, why would I, I'm not going to use that in my life. I'm, I'm one of 500 people in the world. It sucks. They, they don't have all those thoughts. They just, you know, come at it playfully and, and with an open mind. And I think that is fantastic. So reintroducing it through the children is very, very meaningful, in my opinion. It is. It's very interesting. Do you, do you think then Manx, more or less speakers than that 557 figure of main language speakers for Cornish? More, I think, because the Isle of Man is an island. Okay. Yeah, and and right. they have their own tax more. laws and things. So they, they have a kind of, you know, they've got a stronger sense, perhaps, of identity again. Okay, you're right. It's more. Um the, so, as Simon said, the last native speaker died in 1974, but before that, there had been a continuing trend of decline. Um, it went from, in 1874, so 100 years before he died, 16,200 speakers out of the population of 54,000 on the island. Then it went down, um, that was 30% of the population. It then went down to 8.1, 4.8, 1.51 down to 0.5 in 1951, just 275 speakers left. Last native speaker dies, 1974, and then suddenly something happens. 1991, 650 speakers. Wow. Out of the 71%, uh, sorry, out of the 71,000 population. Mm-hmm. And then 2001, 1,500, and it's been growing gradually Ever since then, currently 1,800, about 2% of the 88,000 population. That's, I mean, you know, numbers and, and statistics can show us kind of the, the trends and the revivals. I, it worries me that Simon mentioned shame in the context of speaking the Manx language in the sense yeah. of not feeling like it's, I guess you don't feel like it's legit. Yeah, it's 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 the the shame is a real it's it's a killer of a language, isn't it? Really, massively, massively. It it can instantly kill it. the shame, the feeling of self consciousness, and uh, again, we've seen this. Is, oh, sorry, Go sorry. Ahead. The thing is to avoid that. What can you do? Because there are so many factors that will play into that shame. Where has that shame come from? Why do people feel that shame for their language? That's going to vary across each situation, each individual language in question. Mm. So how, how can you prevent that? It's very, very difficult to, to pinpoint that's what needs to happen. What, what this reminds me of, or a parallel situation, is when sometimes we see, um, you know, people, people might write an email to you or me as, as language bloggers, as people who kind of are out there saying, oh yeah, we, we speak five, six languages. It's, you know, it's, it's a thing that is desirable. It's a thing that, that is possible. And it's a thing that you can kind of work on as well. Um, and I have recently um, got an email f- from, from Ian. Hi Ian. Um, and I'll, I'll read it out in more detail in, in the future, but to cut it very short, he mentioned the, the sense of self-consciousness when he says he's, he learns a language as a hobby or he learns a language for fun and the way that other people react to that kind of making you into the 
little performing monkey how many oh yeah say something in this language do 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 um you know what's what's construction crane fork lift truck in in another language etc you know it's just silly um and that is a way of feeling very conspicuous and very unsafe um in your in your kind of fun in your love of learning another language and perhaps it's similar if you're if you're speaking manx and say you're out in the street and you want to say something to somebody but you would feel too conspicuous you'd feel like you're falling out of line with everybody else and that's where welsh has made has has made such strides forward by making it a thing that isn't weird mm. Mm. and that's that's really i think the key is just to make it not weird mm-hmm, make mm-hmm. it something to be proud of and something that you want to share Yes, absolutely. Something yeah. something to be proud of and something that is, you know, you don't necessarily even have to like go all the way to proud. But if even if you're not proud of it, it's like it's normal. It's a level of normal. It's absolutely, it's, you know, not weird. Yeah. You know, and then oh, via not weird, you, you hopefully take go all the way to proud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a scale. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that brings me quite nicely to the next language that Simon was covering, because believe it or not, we're still not at the end of all the indigenous languages of Britain. Um, and this is often connected with a maligned community. So quite an interesting one, perhaps, to look at as well. Mm. In fact, there are two languages. That's correct. Yes, two. Who knew? Well, I didn't. <laughs> as you'll hear, I didn't. <laughs> okay. And then I wanted to ask you about two more languages that they have on this list. Um, yeah. One, I can sort of figure out who speaks it. And one, mm. I'm like, a what? And they actually, <laughs> no, actually, no, I've got no idea. <laughs> and one, so, so the one that I kind of, I guess, reckon is, is probably gypsy related. If Can you say gypsy? Yeah. Yes, I think. It's, there's one called Anglo-Romani, Anglo-Romani, yeah. which... Yeah. Reminds me of what Brad Pitt speaks in the film Snatch, where you can't understand him. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Mm. Apparently, he speaks sort of Irish travel dialect. Well, that that's something else again. Okay, so that's what's Anglo? Ah, that was the other one on the list. That was Shelter, and I was like, "What on earth yeah. is Shelter?" So that's a, I think that's a combination of Romani, English, and and, and Irish Gaelic. Uh huh. Uh huh. But Anglo-Romani um, is a combination of English and Romani. Mm-hmm. And it's, or Romani, or Roma, Romani comes from, originally from India. And, um, and there's also Welsh Romani, or Romani. Wowza. Which is called Kale. So Anglo-Romani and shelter, um, and I mean, as you as you already heard, I wasn't really quite sure um, about the 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 what and where and who of shelter. Um, these are not widely spoken languages, but they stood they stood out to me because they are so isolated to specific communities. The the traveler community, the the kind of, and and that being a community that we often associate with. Um, you know, gypsy, I think that's a, the ethnic, that's an ethnic term. You can use gypsy as uh, something that is related to 
the countries of Romania, perhaps Bulgaria a little bit. So, you know, like completely different part of Europe. Um, and then I found it really interesting that Simon mentions it comes from India originally. How, yeah. you know, this is, I mean, okay, it's called traveler language. And hasn't that language traveled? Wow. I mean, yeah, all the way from India. That's incredible. Do you know something? Um, there is, the, do you know the word chav? Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, apparently, the word chav yeah, comes just, from... Just in case language. if you're listening and you don't know the word chav, it's a very derogatory British term for um, a kind of white, weedy, skinny, louty-looking person who mostly spends all day drinking. Is that uh, fair enough? It's a very... It, yeah, it, it, it's it, a very it, derogatory term. Very derogatory term and generally associated with lower-class kind of young unemployed uneducated yeah. and very aggressive people well apparently chav originally was romani chal boy and this is a cognate with chavo in in romani language so it's interesting and also words uh, pal yeah meaning originally meaning brother and lollipop have entered into english <laughs> that, yeah. wow okay Okay, that's so interesting. Yeah. And you know what chavs are called here in, in the Northwest? Or not anymore, but you know, when that word was highly used, maybe five, yeah. ten years ago, we called them scallies. Oh yeah, I love the word scally. Mm. I call I call Gonzo a scally all the time. <laughs> but I think well scally is, is basically was about as rude as chav. When you call somebody a chav, it's super rude, you know, don't do that guys. Oh. Yeah. Um but I think that came from sort of the Liverpool area, which yeah, uh, ties it right. ties it to Irish again, because Liverpool has a big Irish population. Obviously, being the the city on the coast that is, you know, kind of very closely related to or very closely linked geographically to. You can take a ferry from there to Dublin, um, and or Belfast, and be there very quickly. Mm. So, what I found fascinating about these particular languages is is really the the fact that they are this in this little community and they seem you know from from what you were saying the you know the words that you mentioned as well the way it comes across they seem so lively they seem so you know like compared to cornish and manx when we're looking at sort of academically we're going yeah these are languages and you know they're now being reintroduced everything's very formal um but languages like anglo-romany or shelter they're like alive and well they're just really segregated yeah, and it's harder to pinpoint numbers as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're associated with a community that I think really has been very maligned. So the, the traveller community isn't often regarded very well by society. And that does, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the most recent probably media coverage that we've had about those was the Channel 4 show, British, you know, what is it? great big gypsy weddings oh my big fat gypsy wedding yeah very controversial very controversial show um and it sort of looked at the traveler community and and you know but but almost as a you know we're, we're visiting these people and it's such a clear sense of like this is not what we are this is not us and equally from their side i think often there would be that level of kind of you guys are not us as well so perhaps one of the languages you know, when you compare it to Scots Gaelic or when you compare it to Irish or Welsh, where they are about national identity, they're about, you know, come and belong to us. 
um, Anglo-Romani and Shelter are much more about, you know, s smaller communities drawing a line almost. I mean, yeah, I mean, languages, it's, it's a beautiful thing because languages can connect people in a way that is uh, that is not possible through other means, but they can also divide if, if you have that kind of lack of knowledge or that, that um, fear, perhaps, you know? Yes, yeah, I think fear is a really, for these particular ones, more than any of the others in our list, you know, like no one's scared of a, BSL signer <laughs> really yeah, but it, you know like travelers are associated with oh you know there's some danger around this um yeah. very probably unwarranted maybe warranted I don't know like I'm, I'm just genuinely being very questioner I suppose um you guys know that I, I like looking at things from both sides and this is this is one of those um really really interesting and nothing Really, only one more thing that I really want to say about this, which is um, fear or not fear, you know, social class, everything taken out. How wonderful is it that it's documented that these are that these exist, these are spoken and these are a part of Britain? Absolutely. OK, and I guess that brings us to the the languages that aren't indigenous, but they're here. Yeah. Of the, the immigrant languages, the most most widely spoken is po is Polish, followed by Punjabi, Hindi, and Bengali. Correct, yeah. And Gujarati. And probably Arabic is, is growing as well. So, yes, this is a huge part of languages spoken in Britain, obviously. I know, and we haven't even, you know, we've just, we've probably been talking about uh, the indigenous languages of Britain without even talking about all the languages that are spoken every day in this country by many, many, many people um, that aren't, again, aren't English. And, you know, we've already talked for an hour. There's so much to fill and we haven't even touched on the, the immigrant languages yet. So we, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but definitely they are worth mentioning and they're hugely spoken. So I've got this BBC, um, little summary here and I thought they, they summed it up very well where it says there are and they call it community languages which is a nice mm -hmm. way of putting it um, so it says there are large numbers of community languages brought into the country and sustained by recent immigrant communities which account for more than 5.5 percent of the population the largest group spoken by 2.7 of the total UK population are South Asian languages such as Bengali, Punjabi, Hindi and Gujarati. So I like the way that they, they, they grouped these different languages because I think it's common for perhaps a Gujarati speaker to also have a sense of Hindi, etc. Um, and it's the, basically the Indian, it's not called a peninsula, the continent, it's subcontinent. Sub subcontinent it's called, yeah. yeah. So it's languages from the Indian subcontinent um, they make up 2.7% of the UK population, which it's it's not a lot. It's not a lot, but mm. it's very it's very concentrated. Um, so that they say 45% of the total ethnic minority population lives in London. So London's probably by far our most multilingual place in Britain. Um, but also cities like Leicester 
are known, and Birmingham too, are known for having a very large proportion of this community. So I would go as far as saying that the South Asian language community tends to be very much more present in the cities. Hmm, I think so. As as most immigrant communities are in in cities, because that's where you know that's where work is. That's where the work is, yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. that puts them into contrast with the British indigenous languages, which often persist more in rural areas where yeah. in- English spread hasn't come so far yet. And Wales probably as you know, as a country with a very large rural proportion, and you think about Cornwall, it's sort of an outpost. You think about the eastern eastern part of Scotland that Simon mentioned, that's a bit of an outpost, as is Northern Ireland in a way. You know, it's not urban territory. Urban is for immigrant languages. Yeah, if you, I mean, the map of, of languages of the UK, I imagine it would look very much, very much that way. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It is fascinating. When I look around, you know, I live in a very small city, but it's a university town. So I guess it, it kind of punches above its weight when it comes to internationalism. And our language that I would see around probably the largest proportion is Polish mm-hmm. partly also because our city has had ties to Poland for you know even before Poland joined the European Union and there were more uh, people coming across but apart from that very very small group of um, East Asian or South Asian languages more Chinese because it comes in through the university mm. and hardly any hardly any Caribbean presences or anything that, mm. you know, is, is West Indies, uh, which kind of surprised me. And as such, you know, not even French or, I don't know, Jamaican Creole or anything like that. What's interesting there, you mentioned about the students. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder how that represents, because, I mean, we're taking these figures from things like censuses and stuff, but if a student is here for four years and a census is done, what, every 10 Every ten, you know this this population and these numbers are going to fluctuate so much in that in between period as well that it's all a, a bit of a pinch of salt, isn't it, with the exact numbers? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it says here, and again, this is census data. So, like Lindsay has already said, this is asking people who are quite settled in Britain, what is your main language? And just to remark on the way that the census was done and this data that we are referring to, um, I was a part of the census in 2011 when it was last done. And my native language and the language I speak very, very regularly, you know, three, four, five times a week is obviously German. That's my native language, the language I grew up in, the language I spoke exclusively until I was 10, to be honest, mostly 20, really. Um, but the way that they phrased the question in the census is they asked, what is your main language? And then what other languages do you speak? And as main language, you really have to think that they mean which language do you speak the most? Which language do you, you know, is, is mostly part of, I guess, your, your identity as well. And I picked English. Um, but the communities and the numbers that we are referring to are for people, not who don't speak English, but people who chose or who indicated that their main language is not English. So these 2.7% of the total UK population are the people who say that Bengali, Punjabi, Hindi and Gujarati are are really main or leading language for them. Yeah. And then the other communities there that we have are Cantonese, 
So that might be, you know, it's, I mean, the, the real number of people in the country, if you're counting students, like you say, Lindsay, would be a lot higher for something like Cantonese, Mandarin, especially um, Italian, Polish, Greek and Turkish. So fascinating stuff there all around, I think. German, not really registering. French, not really registering. But I think that is to do with the fact that if you're from Germany or France and you come to the UK, those are the kind of people who become expats and then sort of settle. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So this is also about, you know, there's, there's, there's such a much more bigger thing at work here, which is um, migration and how that affects your language skills. And if you move to a foreign country, how soon, how quickly does that language become a part of who you are? For some people, it takes a lifetime. For others, it's it's pretty quick. Like for me, it was I would say it was pretty quick that I adopted English as my main language. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine living in another country and you know adopting an, a new main language, Lindsay? Um, yeah, I can imagine living in another country, but I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot lately with, with the whole EU thing happening now. Um, you know, regardless of, of what happens, whether I agree with the, the decision that's made or not, I'll still be British and there's nothing that I can change about that. And so, and I feel that that identity of, of nationality is very strong and it makes me wonder I just don't know I think wherever I live I would still feel very British it's a, I don't know it's hard to answer until until it happens until I'm in a different country yeah yeah I mean speaking as uh, someone who lives in a foreign country I don't I don't feel like I fully slot in perfectly in either place Right. Like, you know, I've lost I've lost some Germanness. But did you feel that before you left Germany? No. Right. No, not at all. But, you know, the way I communicate has changed. The the reference points I have have changed. Sometimes my students ask me um to recommend them some new German pop music and I haven't the first clue. <laughs> Got, yeah. But bearing in mind I don't even know what's in the British charts anymore. But, you know, there's there is so much where I'm just now so culturally aligned with Britain more than I am with Germany, yeah. but not so much that I'm not German anymore. Yeah. You be you become this sort of in-betweeny thing. And, Aww. you know, so I'm looking at what's going on politically and I'm kind of going, but where would I go? <laughs> <laughs> you know? If Britain did leave the European Union and, you know, also the fact that I am now married to a, you know, a, a Brit, yeah. Um and and that's uh you know so I have completely I've I have totally embraced Britain. Yeah. Um Britain in the sense of you know I found a man who married me has totally embraced me. <laughs> and that's not something that's reversible now not at this stage. Yeah. Um so but you know having English as my main language hasn't Maybe that's part of it, actually, is, is like I say, it's, I'm not as German as I could be. I'm not un-German. Yeah. And, but it's, it's funny, I remember interviewing, for this podcast, I think it was episode 29, interviewing Michael Schmitz, who uh, runs Smarter German, and was talking so much, you know, what we in Germany call Klartext, you know, like he was just, like, 
this is this is the thing. This is the thing, guys. Blah blah blah. And he was just really like uh, clear on everything. And the way he communicated was so much less hedged. Was so much more German in that sense. And I felt so. I don't know. Like I felt like ah, oh, I'm I'm working with a German here, and it's nice. <laughs> you know, oh. it's weird. So I spot you know I spot the Germanness, and I I respond to it. And and I like it, and I feel like okay, this is you know this is how I've grown up. Um, but equally, I think Germans, my German friends, sometimes say to me, "Stop being so very, stop being so polite." You know, in England right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's funny. Mm, yeah, because especially because I'm not that polite. <laughs> so this is you know th- th- this is a, a huge huge part of and uh, God, I wouldn't even know where to cover it. So except for to say. You know, we started off, perhaps before you listen to this show, or certainly before we researched this show, we started off with thinking, yeah, United Kingdom, basically English is spoken there. And now we are one hour later and it's it's incredible. Isn't it incredible? It really is. It's There is so much more than English. And at this point, I, I'm coming to the end of the show, really. And I want to give this huge shout out and recommendation for you guys to... Go and check out Omniglot. Go and, you know, like, go on Omniglot and have a look around and, you know, see all this information, all this knowledge, this, this, all the knowledge that Simon shared in this interview and uh, so, so much more is on his website. He's doing, I think, he's doing everyone a huge favor, a big, big service with Omniglot.com. So big, big thanks to Simon Arger from Omniglot for taking the time to talk to us about multilingual Britain and the indigenous languages of Britain um, and also thank you so much for the, the the amazing resource and the amazing kind of outpost of uh, language love knowledge um, it's like a language Wikipedia with more <laughs> with more information than you could ever really want it's fantastic and oh sorry go ahead Lindsay that's okay I was just gonna say it really is fantastic you can probably cut this bit out <laughs> <laughs> And also a, a final shout out to our sponsors, Italki, where you can go and you can find a Scots Gaelic speaker today and talk to them today, Human Connection, and find one of those rare people who are keeping languages alive. Join the mission and pick up a little bit of Welsh, Scottish Gaelic, maybe even Manx, maybe even Cornish or Irish Gaelic. I wish I wish we could say something in 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 one of the other British languages. I guess I could say Ooh. goodbye to you guys in Welsh. I can say, hang on, this is shelter. Let me see. It's got some keywords. Oh, go for it. Does it have goodbye? Yeah. I have. I have good health. Um, I can say long life to you. Long life to you. Okay, so we are going to sign off from the podcast this time, not in the university challenge style, but instead I'm going to be saying. Thank you to you guys in Welsh and goodbye. And Lindsay will be cutting in with some kicking shelter. Ready? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dioch a gurando our podcast. Hedi you a hoel paub. God bless you and save you. Slanta.
thanks for listening to the Creative Language Learning Podcast, guys. Don't forget to subscribe and to rate the podcast in iTunes or on Stitcher. That's always very much appreciated. If you have any feedback or you've got any questions, you can email me, Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-I-N, at fluentlanguage.co.uk, or you can find me on Facebook, Fluent Language Tuition, or on Twitter, at Kirsten Hammers, that is K-E-R-S-T-I-N-H-A-M-M-E-S. <laughs>